0: All right, I'm on. Well, this, um, this opening I have, I, I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was cute and I couldn't think of a good reason to, and so the only tie-in I've got is that when, when we study the Scriptures, I, I understand fully that it takes the Spirit of God to enlighten us. Without the Spirit of God, we can't understand the Scriptures. But I also know that God has given us a brain, and He expects us to use it, and so it takes uh, some diligent uh, work on our part. To, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how that works together, but God wants us to use our brain. And so this, this opening is just to try to stimulate our brains a little bit. This is a actually it's a little poem, but it's called "I am my own grandpa." okay Now you got to think, you got to follow, follow along, you got to pay attention. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I got married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had a hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was my mother, for she was my father's wife. To complicate the matter's worse, although it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. A little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, that also made him brother to the widow's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. Father's wife then had a son who kept them on the run, and he became my grandson, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother. And it makes me blue, because although she is my wife, she is my grandma, too. If my wife is my grandmother, then I am her grandchild. And every time I think of it, it simply drives me wild. For now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As the husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. (laughs) 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 Uh, Ah, some... I just thought that was cute. you got to think about it. See, that's just to stimulate the gray cells a little bit. Yeah. The only explanation that I could come up with is that some people have way too much time. Way too much time. <laughs> or they don't have enough to do or something. I don't know. Can I a little of that? Yes. <laughs> Don't think of it while I'm talking. Though. <laughs> um, well, maybe you can. Okay. Uh, first, we we're in First Corinthians, and last time we finished up in chapter 10, and the last part of chapter 10 talked once more about the idea of sacrificing my rights and privileges for the sake of my brethren in Christ. And it's been mentioned a number of times in First Corinthians, and so... It is an important thing that we be concerned about others and the effect that we have on others and that our rights should take a backseat to our concern for our fellow believers. But I, I've always pointed out, and I'll say it one more time, I believe it also behooves us not to be the weaker brother that is affected by what other people do. Um, I'm talking specifically in those gray areas of life where the Lord has given Freedom. some people are going to choose to do some things that you might think is wrong, and I believe it is It is our duty to be spiritual enough and to know enough of the Lord to not be affected when someone chooses something that they have liberty in the Lord to do and not allow that to affect us. Because certainly we can't stand before the Lord and say, but Lord, it's not my fault because so-and-so did this. That's not going to cut it when we stand before the Lord. So that's kind of a different way to look at it. We certainly... Uh, need to be careful not to cause weaker brethren to stumble, but I think it behooves us not to be a weaker brother also. Well, we're going to continue on into 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, the 1 Corinthians 11 one seems to me to be sort of a wrap-up of what we talked about last time, and I included it in that. He says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Seemed like whoever did the chapter divisions there sort of missed by one verse is all. That seemed like to me. So. It seemed like more of a wrap-up to what he was talking about in chapter 10 than an introduction to chapter 11. And, of course, the chapter markings and the verse markings are all arbitrary. Well, they're as arbitrary as God wants them to be, I guess. I don't know. I guess we'll just drop that. <laughs> uh, so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 11.2. I will state at the outset that um, I, this, is, this is not a lesson that I ever would have chosen. To teach. If I was going through and teaching in a topical manner, I would have avoided these scriptures. Uh, um, it's the fault of your elders, so you can blame it on them, because they, and rightfully so, have asked all of us, you know, we need to do expository teaching and preaching and, and, and start at a spot in the scripture and just start going through verse by verse. And, and just wrestling with everything that the scripture has to say. And that's the way to do it. And I really, I really fully believe that. Uh, for years, I taught a Sunday school class at the Assembly of God. And it was, you know, it was up to me to decide what to teach. And, and so I did a real topical kind of thing. And I realized, and it is said, and I believe it with all my heart, you can, you can do topical teaching and preaching for years and not learn very much Bible. Because most topical type messages. Not that they're wrong. I mean, they, they, there's a place for them now and again, but but most topical type preaching nowadays, you know, reads a scripture and then tells a cute story like I am my own or something. And then, you know, talks about a lot. And when you get done with the whole message, there's two or three verses of scripture that you've maybe talked about a little bit or and, and you don't talk a lot about a lot of scripture. And so here we're going to just start and go through the chapter 11 and start wrestling with these scriptures here. And so I'm just the guy who's up here. Starting in in verse 2, we're going to do 2 through 16 today, assuming that we get that far. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man." For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Uh, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Okay, so we are... Paul is uh, continuing to write to the people and, and he's continuing to deal with some issues in the church. Uh, before we get into the, uh, the, the details of the verse by verse, just kind of a general remark. The question comes up many times when we're talking about the topic of head coverings is to what does this refer? Does it refer to head coverings in general or just during worship services? And when I first read the scripture and, and started looking at it, it wasn't clear to me that, that it was talking, you know, it doesn't say in here, I'm talking about just during worship services here. And, and certainly there are people out there, I, I don't know if it's Mennonites or, or other groups, where they firmly believe that women should be wearing head coverings all the time. It talks about while praying and prophesying, and the scripture certainly says pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. I'm not sure if that's the reason why they do it or not. I guess I don't know. I never looked into it. However, the section of the scripture that we're in, from here through the end of 14, uh, of course, except for a brief interlude in, in 13, where it, which is the love chapter, he's talking about issues that are being dealt with in the church. He talks uh, This, the head coverings, he talks about conduct at the Lord's table. He talks about the use and misuse of spiritual gifts, um, and it, and so when he talks about praying and prophesying, I guess I, I came to the conclusion that praying is certainly something that can be done publicly and it can be done privately. Prophesying is not something that's done privately. I mean, prophesying, and the word that's translated prophesieth here is The word means to prophesy or to speak an inspired message, sometimes encouraging obedience to God, sometimes proclaiming the future. This is just the definition of the word. I want to deal with that issue in just a minute. As a warning to preparedness and continued obedience, um, it's used with the primary meaning of telling forth divine counsels uh, to teach, refute, and reprove. Now, so obviously the word prophesying in 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 general in the scripture, at least in the Old Testament, dealt with this idea of foretelling the future. That was one of the concepts of, of prophecy. I would maintain that in the New Testament, I believe that's not true anymore. Um, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, and in, in chapter 14 talks an awful lot about uh, prophesying and speaking in tongues and the things that go on during a church service, and I can't wait to hear what I have to say about that. Um, But it says in verse 3, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. And so I guess I would maintain at this point that prophesying, is something that is done in public, but it's done to build up the body, to comfort the body, to exhort the body, to call people to obedience. And it is an inspired message from God. And there are those who will say that the the prophecy gift died with the apostles. And and I will say this a couple times today. I'm not sure that I believe that exactly. I, I think that this idea of prophesying to foretell the future was an Old Testament thing that, and I don't believe that there's need for that because the, the scripture is here and is, is everything that we need. It says in Hebrews that God, in times past, spoke to us through the prophets, but now in this latter time, he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ and certainly through the word of God that has given us the 100% fully inspired word of God. And so, um, but, but, I, but I think this idea of, of an inspired word from God to exhort the body and it talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14 in the New Testament church, and talks about how it ought to be handled, seems to me that it's something that belongs in the New Testament church, but it's certainly something that is done publicly. So I would say that um, certainly when we're talking about head coverings, it certainly is going to apply at least to the worship service. I can't say that I've you know, there is this idea of prayer in public. There's times when, you know, a woman might even pray with her children. I, I, I haven't reached a conclusion on whether, you know, does a woman need to put a head covering on when praying with her children? And, and we'll talk about maybe a little bit more on that. I'm just saying there's something, like, I've struggled with that and I'm not sure, but at least minimally it's talking about during the church service. If you if you look at some commentators, they, they just state unequivocally this is about church services, and they don't tell you why they've come to that conclusion. They just say, well, this is just you know for what. So let's that that's primarily the where I'm approaching it from. Minimally, this is certainly about um, uh, talking about head coverings in church services. So let's uh, let's start going through the verses and see what it has to say. Verse two, Paul begins by commending them for remembering him and his teaching. Clearly not everyone is, because he's going to continue on to rebuke them and and try to make some changes for some things that are going on incorrectly in Corinthians, but I think he's following a good good philosophy of correction. Many times if if somebody's going to be corrected, it's good to start out by recognizing that which is being done correctly, and then uh, continuing on to the rebuke, and... uh, if that was his intent, I don't know. But that, that's certainly a good positive way to deal with, uh, with a problem, to notice what's being done. And, and he says, I, you know, I want to commend you for in all things and keeping the ordinances as I delivered them to you. The word that's translated ordinances there, uh, a lot of times when we see the word ordinances, we tend to think of the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But this is not that word. This, this is a word that elsewhere in the scripture is translated traditions. So he's really saying, and it may say that in your version. I'm just reading out of the King James where it calls it the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And so uh, this word is translated traditions in other uh, translations. And really that's the word. And elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated traditions. Um, it's not talking about the traditions of men. The word translated ordinances is a handing down a handing down of something or a tradition, and hence by, well, excuse me, it's the, in the Old Testament it was the teachings of the rabbis, and by implication in the New Testament it's talking about apostolic teaching. In other words, the teaching of the apostles as being handed down to, to the people in the churches. And the teachings of the apostles were authoritative teachings from God on how a Christian ought to be living their life, how the church services ought to be be handled. And so we're not just talking about here them keeping some tradition of, you know, know, we've got the church of that we put green lights in our window, and if you don't put green lights in your window, you go to hell kind of thing. That's really a silly example, but I mean, that would be a traditional thing that man would invent. And uh, it's not talking about those kinds of things. He's talking about them keeping the teachings of the apostles as handed down by word primarily, because that's how they did it. Certainly they did it by writing also. We're reading some of it. But uh, so, so he's commending them, and, and it might even be the majority of them, for keeping the apostolic teachings. Um, I, I know that the Catholic Church teaches that the traditions of the church are of equal importance with Scripture. And I know that because I... I heard that and I wanted to verify that was the case, so I went and found a copy of their Vatican II, all the writings of the Vatican II Council that they held back in the 60s. It was about that thick. I didn't read any of it except I did find the part where it says those exact words. And they're talking about the traditions that the church has come up with through the years. They hold on equal par with Scripture. Now, that's not the kind of traditions we're talking about here. Again, I said these are apostolic teachings that were were inspired teachings of God through the apostles to the churches. So we're not, we're not trying to hold up that idea that the traditions of men are on equal par with scriptures. Okay, then he goes on to verse 3. And okay, so Paul now gets to verse 3, and he goes right to the crux of the problem. He's going to talk about the problem, but verse 3, he goes right to the crux of the problem by, by saying, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now note he doesn't go into a lengthy teaching on the idea of, of authority and the authority structure that God has put in place. He's assuming that they understand what he's talking about. And you have to go elsewhere in Scripture to get you know the teachings of, of this authority. and uh, we can read some from, these are familiar verses and I know you've seen them, but turn to Ephesians 5. I'm going to read these verses again because the, the and it just let the scripture speak for itself in terms of what he's talking about. here. Well, it's not completely. I guess I'm going to add some words here too. But he says that every man is under authority to Christ. Um, it's interesting, just kind of a sidelight. He says every man, whether he accepts it or not, is under the authority of Christ. And and I would just you know, encourage you today, if you're a man and you and you don't know Christ, you're under his authority whether you like it or not. And uh, as soon as we can accept that fact accept the fact that we're sinners, accept the fact that he is our, that, that he has provided the way of salvation and become, you know, accept that and become saved and then willingly go under his authority. That is that is a good thing. But he's saying that every man is under the authority to Christ and every married woman is under authority to her husband. If you, in Ephesians 5, starting in 22, <coughs> wives, Submit yourselves one to an uh, excuse me, wife, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, men, you gotta I said this many times before, you gotta pay attention to what he's saying here to men. This is not like a, all right, we're in charge, free ride kind of thing. Pay attention to what the, the husband's job is. So, in the same way, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And elsewhere we could go, but that's the... Okay, we're talking about an authority structure that God is setting up. And uh, God is the authority. He is over the man who is in authority over his family. He's the head of the family. Um, and the woman is, is to be in that authority structure, um, in this positional structure, under the authority of her husband. Uh, and note, interestingly, that he concludes in verse 3 with, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is one of those things I would call a mystery. This is a, a hard thing to grasp because Jesus is God and he is equal with God, and yet it says He is uh, the head of Christ is God. And and it's possible that he mentions this fact here to remind us of the fact that Christ humbled himself and placed himself under God's authority. um, And again, these are familiar scriptures, but I'm going to read them in Philippians 2. I know they've been read here many times. This this is Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you which also was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I wonder if that wasn't mentioned here as a reminder to men that Even from his exalted position, Christ humbled himself to become a servant. And that, I believe that the position that one is placed in of authority, you know, the word always said, with authority comes responsibility. Someone who is in a position of authority, our job is to protect and to serve and to love those that we have authority over. It's not to lord it over the people that we have authority over it so it, it is a big responsibility to be the one in authority. so it's not a cakewalk to say, oh great I'm a man I get to be in charge Oh goody um, not that not that I like submitting either but uh, you know the grass is always greener on the other side sometimes you say I wonder who's got the harder job here it's me. And again, it's not talking about, peop- it's, it, he's not talking about people's worth in God's eyes. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 3, uh, Galatians 3, 26, talking to believers. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in our standing in Christ, we are all equal. In this positional authority structure that God has put into place, we have different places of authority that we need to fit into our, our, our place of authority. And so he focuses in on that, saying we need to remember this again and get back on this and focus on this because this is going to be help us understand what I am going to talk about next. Okay, so now let's go on to verses 4 through 6. Or go on. He states the principle that a man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head, and that a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, Before I go into that, a question to deal with here that comes up, a difficulty with this question is why, if we're talking about um, conduct in a uh, worship service, why are we discussing uh, women praying and prophesying if later on in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Paul is going to say women should be silent in church. Let your women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church." So then, if you're on top of things, you might ask the question, why is he talking about here about women praying and prophesying publicly in church if he's gonna tell them a couple of chapters later to be quiet in church? That's a good question. (laughs) Do you know what it means when somebody says, that is a good question? That it means it's a lot better question than the answer you're going to get. <laughs> and uh, greater men than I, which doesn't take much, have struggled with this question. And, and so there are different thoughts on the matter. Some, some will say Paul is bringing up a hypothetical circumstance in order to deal with the issue of, of head coverings. Uh, one thing I can state without a doubt is that the scripture does not contradict itself. I believe that with all my heart. God is... The scripture is 100% inspired, and if it appears to have a contradiction, it's because I don't understand. Now, the world will will take that as a cop-out, but I don't really care what the world thinks. That's the truth. That's the way it is. So he's not, and especially in the same letter, he's not going to contradict himself a couple of pages later and say, well, if you pray and prophesy, but then later on, shut up. He's not going to do it that way. That's That's just not the way it is. And so some people say, well, it's hypothetical. He's, he's, just because he uses that as an example to deal with the head covering issue doesn't mean that he isn't going to tell women later on that they need to be silent in church. Some people say there is an exception in, 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 in church that if, if you really are going to prophesy, and this is really a God-inspired message that is going to be given to the church, that it's God speaking and not really the woman. And so... Um, and others say, when he's talking about women praying and prophesying in church, he's talking about them partaking in public prayers and public singing and, and reading of the Psalms and things like that. And, and to be honest with you, I don't know. I just need to go on and say, well, what, what is he saying about it? That, that seems to be a problem. I don't believe the scripture uh, contradicts itself, and so I'm just going to leave it at that and continue to struggle with that uh, understanding. I... The scripture does say that while we're here, we see through a glass darkly. And although I believe that God has said he will reveal the scriptures to us if we have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't reveal the whole mess all at once. I don't mean mess in terms of it being a mess. I mean, he doesn't reveal it all at once. He takes us step by step. and And you can look back in your own experience as a Christian and see that. There's some things that God has revealed to you recently that you would not have believed or even accepted years ago. And so that's just... The way it is, the the word head here. When he talks about uh, the man dishonoring his head and the woman dishonoring her head. Could really be taken in two ways. He could be talking about dishonoring himself. I, an interesting scripture in Second Samuel fifteen thirty. Just read the excuse me. <coughs> just read the one <coughs> scripture in Second Samuel fifteen thirty. This is. Um, This is at the time when Absalom came to take over from David and David fled from the city because Absalom wanted to take over as king. And uh, prior to 30, David is telling the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem because that's where it belongs, even though he's leaving because he chooses not to stay and fight Absalom. He chooses to leave. But it says in 1530, it says, And David went up, by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered. And he went barefoot, and all the people that were with him was with him. Seems like bad English. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went. David wept and covered his head and went barefoot in shame and humiliation. He's being run out of Jerusalem by his own son. And so this idea of covering the man covering his head was a shame. And then and, and going barefoot was also. And then if you just flip ahead to Jeremiah 14.3 is another example. Jeremiah 14.3 It's talking about when there was a famine. Jeremiah 14.3. I can start in one, I guess. <clears throat> it's talking about a, a famine in the land. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the darth or the famine. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish, and, and they are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. So covering their heads was a, a sign for a man, was a sign of shame. And so he's talking about that here in, uh, in verse 4. Shaming, you could be, he, the head, when he said um, dishonoring your head, could be talking about dishonoring oneself as a shame. Could also be talking about dishonoring the God who is the spiritual head of the man. And we'll see more about that in just a little bit. He claims that the dishonor for the woman is the same as if she had her head shaved. Um, notice that even in our evil culture, a woman having her head shaved is looked on as, 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 as weirdness. I mean, I've, I've seen some women with some really strange haircuts. I remember years ago, we were in a bus in Minneapolis, and this, this girl who probably would have been pretty good-looking otherwise had all of her head shaved except right in the middle, and she had a spiked mohawk. I just kind of thought. I'm not going to tell you what I thought. But, yeah. <laughs> Even in... Yeah. I have a reverse mohawk. I could have had a Mohawk then. I'm talking about men having long hair. If you're interested, I, gotta, I keep a picture in my wallet of my, when I was in college, back when I knew everything and I had hair down to here. If I ever, ever start getting at all arrogant, I take that out and look at it, and it just humbles me right down to my shoes. Uh, anyway, even, even in our, we're not talking about cultural mores here, but just look in the culture. Even nowadays in this evil culture, a woman having her head shaved is considered to be weird. It is considered to be a shame. And the question always is here, is he talking about, and we're going to deal with this issue later when it talks about the hair being the covering. I'm not going to avoid it. We'll talk about that. But the the question always is, is he talking about the hair as the covering or something else? And I would maintain here that he's talking about something else besides just the hair because The words that are used for covered and uncovered throughout these verses, except for verse 15, which we'll get to, are the same Greek root, and they imply a cloth covering and not hair. And I didn't know what this was, but the Septuagint, um, back in 247 B.C., uh, some, I don't even know who did it, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and there was a Greek translation that was done of it back in 247 B.C. And, of course, Greek is the language of the New Testament. And the words that these same words are used in the Septuagint uh, time and time again to, in, in, in cases where it's clearly dealing with some kind of a cloth covering. So the word means that. And then I think just logically, you know, we did that I am my own grandpa thing, so you, your gray cells would be working here. And if you look at it, it doesn't even make sense what he says in 5 if he was just talking about hair. Um, because he's not going to say, um, if she be. he says, if she be not cut, let her also be shorn or have her hair cut. He's not going to say, if she has her hair cut, then let her have her hair cut. It doesn't make sense. Now, you might argue that. but And then in verse, um, verse 5, he can't mean the saying, having short hair is like having short hair. He says having short hair is like being uncovered. Now, you could argue with that argument. You might say, well, may, when he talks about having your hair short, it's versus being shaved bald. I mean, you can argue with that. But I, but I, would, but I would just counter with the, the word and the, and, the, and the translation of the word and what it meant in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and elsewhere in the Scripture in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's the word that means a cloth covering. So let's just get that out front that I believe he's talking about a cloth, a separate covering of the head besides just hair. Okay, so he goes on to verse 7 to say that uh, for man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and the glory of God. Okay, so um, he says that man is the image and glory of God. The word image, the Greek word image means Um, a likeness or a portrait. It denotes two ideas, one of representation and manifestation. And by that I mean representation means that which exhibits by resemblance, an image, a likeness, a picture or a statue, the act of representing or describing or showing. So he's saying that man actually describes or shows God. Now clearly since the fall, we are not perfect and we are not God. And so we don't, you know, we're maybe not... Uh, a very good representation of God, but people can look at us and see God in us if they're willing to be looking. And then the idea of manifestation is the act of disclosing what is secret, unseen, or obscure, discovery to the eye or to the understanding. Again, it, it both, ha- both has to do with, uh, it says here, it has to do with man as he was created as being a visible representation of God, a being a being that is corresponding to the original, not an exact replica, obviously, but corresponding to the original. Um, the condition of man as creature has not entirely effaced the image. He is still suitable to bear responsibility. He still has godlike qualities such as love of goodness and beauty, none of which are found in the mere animal. And so, when it talks about being a image of God he was created as a repre- representation of God and then it says man is also the glory of God the word glory is talking about uh, splendor brilliance from the base meaning of the awesome light that radiates from God's presence and is associated with his acts of power honor praise speaking of Uh, words of excellence and assigning highest status to God. Okay, so, and and Vines talks about this word meaning of man as representing the authority of God. When he says man is the glory of God, man representing the authority of God, and of woman as showing the authority of man over her. Again, only talking about uh, the authority structure that God has put in place. And he's saying that is a reason why man ought not to cover his head, because he was created first, and the woman was created from him and for him. If we flip over to 1 Timothy 2.11, there's another scripture that talks uses this same argument. 1 Timothy 2.11 let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was the first formed, and then Eve. So man was created first, not because he was better, but because God was illustrating the authority structure that he was putting in place. And if God decides it, that's the way it is. And then if you flip back to Genesis 2:18. Uh, Familiar verses. 2.18, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. And then it talks about him creating all the beasts of the world. And then it says in 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. And then it proceeds to give the story of how he put a deep sleep on Adam and created woman out of the out of the rib of man to be a helpmeet. So woman was created out of man, from him and for him. And again, it doesn't make the man better. It it just means that this is God's authority structure as he has set it up. And then he continues, okay, so he he says that in verse 7, 8, and 9. He goes on to say, that man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. He's using that same argument about man being created first and woman coming out of him just as an illustration of this authority structure. And then he gets to verse 10, and he says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And the word translated power there really is the word for authority, woman ought to have authority on her head. And it's not the authority that's attributed to the woman, but the veil being discussed on her head is a symbol of her authority, her being under the authority of a man. That's the best that I can tell is what that says. Now, it says, on her head, because of the angels. This is another one of those. You might ask the question, what does that mean? And I would say, again, that is a very good question. Uh, there's a different opinions on this, and uh, some believe that it's because that when we're worshiping God, the angels are around observing us and learning about God's love and grace through how he deals with, with man. Because the angels, you know, they're they they uh, they're, they're not men. They don't need grace. and uh, But that's just a speculation, and I'm not sure exactly what it means because of the angels. But uh, I believe it states that a woman should have sign of authority on her head, the sign of the fact that she is under the authority of her husband. And then you go on to verses 11 and 12, and I think these simply state, again, he, he wants to make it clear that uh, that men and women are equal in the Lord from a spiritual perspective. As we already looked at the, the, the verses that we read in Galatians, that in our standing in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are equal before God in our standing with Christ, and he wants to repeat that here. He says, "Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. The man and the woman are mutually dependent; they're dependent on one another, and, and the, the the marriage, the marriage bond illustrates that so clearly. God has given uh, both of the people things to bring to the marriage that we become mutually dependent on one another, and that's what he's saying here." And again, emphasizing that this is a positional authority. This is not worth of a human being. It's kind of an interesting side note that the the Israeli culture, among the cultures of the time, the Israeli culture was really the one that treated women with much more respect than the other heathen cultures did. You know, the the, the feminazis will try to, excuse me, the feminists will try to tell you that that, uh, that's not, you know, this patriarchal culture and they're trying to keep women under their thumb and under their feet. Uh, That was true in a lot of cultures, but not in the Israeli culture. I mean, not to say that there weren't men who were like that. There always are. But uh, the way the culture was, the woman who was fulfilling her role as wife and mother was treated with great respect in in the Israeli culture. And that was really unique to the, the Israeli culture, the culture of the chosen people of God who put this order in place. And then we get to verse 13 to 15. And in verse 13, he asks a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that's asked for just for an effect. He's not expecting an answer because in this case the answer is supposed to be obvious. So he says in 13: Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? He's not getting to this point and saying, Well, I've told you what I think. Now what do you think? He's just asking a rhetorical question. And the answer is supposed to be clearly obvious. The answer is no, it is not comely or proper or appropriate or fitting that a woman pray unto God uncovered. And then he goes on to ask the question, doesn't even nature itself teach you that it is a shame for a man to have long hair, but that it is a woman's glory to have long hair? And it's an interesting verse. I've wondered about this. And the question you'd ask is what exactly does nature mean here? Um, if we read the definition of the word nature, uh, it's just, it's the word physis, nature, natural state of being or characteristics, the regular law or order of nature. But you still might ask, what exactly does that mean? It does not mean, and I don't believe it can possibly mean, the cultural acceptance of the idea that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. Now, I don't, you know, I don't have tons of history books that go into all the culture back then, but what I could find, uh, it was kind of interesting to me, you know, you, you look back and you see pictures and portrayals of people uh, writing, or drawing pictures of Jesus and the, the apostles and all that, and they always show men with really long hair. Actually, in that culture, in that time, it was much more common for men to have short hair and women to have long hair. Much more accepted, even in the, in the Jewish culture and in, in, the, in the other cultures, that was true. But it wasn't universally accepted. There were many of cases where the men, men had longer hair. And so it's not a cultural thing because it was not a universal. When he's saying, doesn't nature teach you, he's not saying, wasn't the culture of the time show you that long hair is for uh, women and short hair is for men? He's, he's not saying that. And even if you look in our culture today, I mean, clearly over time, there have been varying times when long hair for men was much more acceptable much to my chagrin, because I need to, I have to look back at pictures of myself. I hate that. But um, I think what he is saying here is that he's talking about the, uh, the, nat- the, the natural order of things as established by God's creation. Now... What does that mean? That I think he's saying that when God created the earth and created man and woman, He created them with, with men having short hair and women having long hair, and that was the natural order as God created it. And it is, and that's the way He established it, and it's binding. It's not; it hasn't changed, whether cultures accept it or not. It's, it's, bind, it's been binding from the beginning because that's the way God created. I think. That is what, when he says, doesn't nature teach us that? I think he's saying, isn't the natural order of creation, the way God created things to be, that's the way he's created it, for men to have short hair and women to have long hair? And if a man has long hair, it's a shame unto him. Now, an argument in that effect is that in the established order of Jewish culture, if a man took a Nazarite vow, one of the things that went with that Nazarite vow to, to distinguish him from other men was he had to grow his hair long and not cut it. If men wore long hair all the place, how, how, would, how would a Nazarite be distinguished? Now, there were other things that they did. I believe they didn't drink any, um, well, any fruit of the vine at all. Uh, there were other things, but one of the distinguishing characteristics of a Nazarite was for the man to grow his hair long. The implication being that that was out of the ordinary. So all these pictures that we see of the culture back then, the, the, the Jewish, in the Jewish culture, it was common and it was accepted that men had short hair and women had long hair. And then we get um, to verse 15 where it says, yeah. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Here we get to that verse. Aha, the hair is a covering, so I don't have to wear a veil or a cloth in church. Now, I think if we analyze this carefully and honestly, we have to state that uh, verse 15 is, is tied in with what he's talking about in verses 14 and 15. I think Paul is using the argument of the natural order of things as established by God to say that even as God gave the woman her long hair as a covering in nature, so the woman should wear the cloth covering in the worship services, because that's what he's been talking about prior. You know, if if we accept the fact that the word for covering earlier means a cloth covering on the head, then he's he's not just all of a sudden arguing all that in all these verses, and then all of a sudden getting to 15 and going, huh, fooling you. Uh, you don't really have to. I, I don't think that's what he meant. And again, it, it would it would be it would be a contradiction right, if that's what he meant here. So he's he's saying that the illustration of God's natural order of things in nature, God has given uh, the woman her hair as a covering, and so even so, it is the right thing for a woman to to use covering in church, as I've been arguing previously. Um, and and if if all he meant by all of this, if he wasn't talking about some kind of other covering, if all he was talking about was a woman having long hair, all he would have to say is a woman should have long hair. Because, you, you, I mean, you, you don't take your hair off and on when you go to worship services. Unless you had chemotherapy and are wearing a wig, I guess you can't do that. But, but in, in, all he would have had to say from the beginning is a woman should have long hair and a man should have short hair, done. Now let's get on to the next issue. But he spent a lot of time talking about the issue of head coverings, and so I believe when he gets here and says that a woman's hair is given to her for a covering, he's using that as an illustration out of God's natural order to as an argument for what he has said previously. And then we get to verse 16, and it appears it this verse has just kind of weirded me out because I just thought, what what does this doesn't make seem to make sense here? He, He concludes with the verse. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And it almost sounds like you're saying, well, if you want to get out of this whole deal, just be contentious. Just, the word contentious means quarrelsome, you know, causing strife someone who wants to be uh, uh, troublesome and quarrelsome. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think, he's not saying, if you don't like this whole deal, then just become a contentious person. And then, poof, you don't have to do this custom. that's what it appears to say, but I I don't believe it can be saying that. The only thing that makes sense here is that what I believe he's saying is if anyone doesn't like this teaching and becomes quarrelsome and causes strife, we, I think when he says we, he's referring to we the apostles, we the ones who have been giving this, uh, passing on this this apostolic teaching, simply state that we have no such custom of women attending church services with their heads uncovered. Now, you might say, well, that looks like a stretch to make it fit, but it has to fit. The scriptures have to fit, and he's not going to get to this point and just say, well, if you want to get out of it, just be a quarrelsome person because he, you know he's not going to be encouraging people to be quarrelsome. Um, and so I, I just don't think it can mean anything else. I think uh, it, it has to be that meaning when he gets here to say, okay, if you don't like this teaching, um, we we don't have the custom here of people not, of women going into the church services without having their heads uncovered. I believe that's what he's saying, and you'll hear other uh, interpretations of that. You know, as 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 meaning, well, Paul got here and he just said, well, we don't want to get all bent out of shape by this, and so you know, it's no big deal really. I I, I don't think, in fairness, that's what the scripture is saying there. But and I and I I can only. <laughs> I can only go by what I I believe the Scripture is saying, and so that's what I think. And so, okay, so we've gone through some of the meanings of this, and then the question comes down to, um, what do we, how do you apply this? It's always the question of the Scripture. This is what the Scripture says. We try to figure out what it means. How do we apply it? I don't think we can say here that Paul is just talking about a cultural thing. You will you can find commentators who will say, well, the culture of the time, it was a shame to go about with your head uncovered. And so, that, since that's what it meant then, it's really talking about just being modest and uh, and, and not shaming yourself in the culture. Um, and again, I, I will say, you know, some people interpret it that way. Um, I, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. I, I really believe he's talking about the physical head coverings that were worn by the women. And oh, by the way, it continued on in the churches of that time, on through the times, you know, in the, the post-apostolic era, it continued in the churches, and continued in all kinds of churches up through, really, about 40 years ago. Um, I, I was raised Catholic, and in the Catholic Church, the women wore head coverings. And and all, all different denominations of churches, women wore head coverings, and it really disappeared... 40-some-odd years ago when our culture changed. And, and so I, I think that that's just evidence of the fact that the church believed it for years, and then culture eventually uh, changed people's views. I, 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 it's the frog in the kettle thing. You've know, all heard the story about you know, if you put a frog in a, in a kettle of water, cold water on a stove and turn the heat on, And as the water slowly warms up, well, first of all, if you took a frog and threw him into hot water, he'd immediately hop out if he could, because the water was hot. But if you put him in cold water that he's used to and slowly heat it up, the frog will eventually boil to death and never jump out of the water because the, the adjustment of the temperature is so slight that he just gets used to it over time. Now, you've all heard that illustration. But that is true of the church, and it's true of us today. And whether we like it or not, we are frogs in the kettle, and we have been... We have been uh, affected by the culture. Now, I've looked at these verses n- numerous times, and we first left the Assembly of God Church and went to the Lindstrom's Fellowship, and they wore head coverings, and we, I looked at it and said, well, I guess you're supposed to wear head coverings, and then we were going to go back to the Assembly of God Church after there was this big problem, and I looked at it again, and lo and behold, I discovered that you shouldn't wear head coverings because I didn't want to deal with it, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, and, I, and again, I didn't want to look at these verses, but your elders made me. <laughs> I would blame it on them. But I, I also think that this is not something that we need to go around telling other people. I mean, I, again, I'm asked to look at the scripture to the best of my ability. I think I, the things that I could figure out, I've tried to figure out what these verses said, and I just want to say it. But I don't think it's something that we can go around just, you know, and, and pointing our finger in people's faces and telling them that you have to do this. Um, years ago, there was a girl that was in my department at work, and um, she was a Christian. She was attending a Baptist church where they believed strongly in, in, the, in, in for women to be modest, they needed to wear dresses. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Um, certainly women need to be modest, and, and, and maybe they were, you know, I don't know. Uh, but anyway... She, had, she, she got married and she started having kids, and she had like a couple daughters that were like two years old. And, and she had people from the church stop over at her house when they were outside and rebuke her for the fact that her two-year-old daughter was outside wearing a little jumper, that, not a jumper, but one of those little pant jumper kind of outfits that wasn't a dress. And, you know, rebuking her for being evil for this little two-year-old wearing a dress. And to which I say, get a life, <laughs> you know, that, that's going overboard, and it's not your place to tell her how to deal with this. And, and um, I think we we need to deal with the scriptures and, and what they say, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, why we are doing what we're doing. You know, wh- whether we're wearing head coverings or not wearing head coverings, why are we? And be honest with ourselves. Um, we may be getting affected by the culture more than we like to admit. And that might be the reason um, if, if we, you know, there, there are differences of opinion on the scripture when good, godly people will, will disagree on what something means. And uh, you can find those who will interpret these scriptures differently. And, and the question becomes, am I finding the people who interpret it the way I want it to be interpreted, or am I being honest? And, and, and all, all any of us can ever say about the Scripture is we need to be honest with ourselves and honest before God in dealing, what does the Scripture say and what does it mean to me? And, and what is the result going to be? What, what am I going to do about it? And, and that's the only thing I can say um, here is that this is another one of those issues. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to go around and tell people what, how they ought to respond to these Scriptures. That some things are important and so they are commanded. For example, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. These things have always been wrong, and so they are commanded. But some things are commanded, so they are important. You see the difference? Some things are important, so they're commanded. Some things are commanded, and by virtue of the fact that God has commanded them to us, they now are important, whether we think they are or not, or whether the culture or the world... In general, would admit that they're important, and I and I think that this is one of those things. I, I think we just have to be careful uh, not not to get to um, not to get to things and say, well, uh, uh, you know I don't I don't like that, and so I don't think that's very important. Uh, that's just again. Um, some will argue that this is just uh, the head covering was a real cultural thing. I think what separates it from, for example, you know greet each other with a holy kiss that was a cultural thing. I think what separates it from that is, is the, the issue where he talks about doesn't nature itself tell you that? It talks about God's established nature and because of this, uh, we, need to, we need to do this. I think that separates them from saying that this is not an issue that's a cultural issue. This is something that's, that's uh, that transcends culture and cultural opinion. Um, others have said that because a woman's hair is her glory, when we're in a worship service, the only glory that should be shown is God's glory, and so that glory, the woman's glory, should be covered. That's just another, you know, makes sense. I just, I just throw that out there too as, as a thought on this. So, um, there. Um, again, I, 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 put it out there for what it's worth, and and to the best that I was able to try to understand what these scriptures say and then leave it in each one of your hearts to decide what response we're going to make. And that's all we can do with uh, this any scripture that comes along is respond uh, to the truth of it as God would have us respond. And, and, and however we respond to be able to say, I'm standing before God in all honesty and this is my, this is my choice. And then not allow it to cause any problem for us if someone else chooses Amen. differently that's' the, I'll just put it at that. so let's pray. Father I, I want to thank you again always for the, the, the gift of your son the, uh, the pro, who, who was a propitiation for our sins. I, I am so thankful that this, this grace that you have through Christ through the blood of Christ has been offered freely to us and, and salvation. Provided through it, I'm so thankful for that, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the the scriptures that are the 100% your inspired word that is there to teach us. That has everything that we need for life and for godliness. And so I thank you for that. And and I just pray that uh, each that you help each one of us deal with the scripture, Uh, not just this scripture, but all scripture. Deal with with what it says and, and with what our response to it ought to be, Father. I, I pray that your spirit would work with each of us to be a, a people that would be striving every day to be a, uh, closer to you, to be a, a more godly and obedient and faith-filled people. Um, I just thank you for that, Father, knowing that, that uh, you continue the work that you've begun in each one of us, and you will continue it unto completion, as the Bible says. So I thank you for that, and give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.